We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, how Gene Stick Michael built a dynasty. You've probably heard or read somewhere that Stick Michael deserves the credit for the Yankees' epic run of four championships in five years in the late 90s, but you might not know exactly why he deserves that credit. If you're like me, you were young during that time, so you weren't really comprehending what he did to build a dynasty. Today, I'm going to get into what those moves were, really who Gene Michael was, his relationship with Steinbrenner, his coming and going to the Yankees a number of different times. That seems to be a common thread with a lot of people who work for George Steinbrenner. You come, you go, you come back. Gene Stick Michael was no different there. So we'll get into all that. What are some of the notable moves and non-moves that he made in the early 90s that set the Yankees up for championship runs? And also what some people, coaches, players, executives, media members said about him when he passed away in 2017 really tells you all you need to know about the kind of guy and the kind of respect that Stick Michael had. Gene Michael was nicknamed Stick because he had a slender build. As a player, he was less than impressive. He hit 229 over 10 seasons with the Pirates, Dodgers, Yankees, and Tigers. He played shortstop for the Yanks from 68 to 74. But he was actually really respected by his teammates and even Steinbrenner, who 
owned the team starting in 73, Steinbrenner was quoted as saying, if there was ever a team fight, the players always told me that they wanted stick on their side. I read a blurb in an article about a brawl at Fenway Park in which there was a skirmish at home plate and Carlton Fisk and Stick Michael were getting into it. Carlton Fisk was a much bigger human being. He was a catcher for the Red Sox, much bigger guy than Stick, but Stick held his own. And that was something that always stood out in the minds of his teammates. This is a guy we want on our side. And if you hear any quotes or anything from from people over the years, they love Stick Michael. And the fact that he was a good teammate, probably good to work with, good to work under, goes a long way in that. He retired after the 76 season and then rejoined the Yankees organization. He was a coach on Billy Martin's staff. And then from 76 to 80, he did a number of different things within the organization. He even managed the Columbus Clippers, the AAA team, and then he served as a special assistant to Steinbrenner. He was promoted to general manager for the 1980 season, and then that's where things get a little messy. For the 81 season, Steinbrenner insisted he step down as GM and manage the team because he fired Dick Hauser after being swept by the Royals in the ALCS in 1980. You'll remember the 1981 season was the split season due to the players' strike, so it was a weird season altogether. Michael managed the Yankees to a 34 and 22 record in the first half, which was first place for them. That also guaranteed them a playoff berth. So the team came out in the second half and really looked sluggish. Steinbrenner publicly criticized the decisions Michael was making. He blamed their lackluster play on him. Then, in late August, Michael told reporters, it's not just now or earlier in the season. It started in spring training. Every ball game you lose, you could have done something different. It's not fair that he criticizes me and threatens to fire me all the time. I'd rather he do it than talk about it. I told him exactly that today. Don't wait. Well, Steinbrenner didn't wait too long because he fired him on September 6th and replaced him with Bob Lemon. The Yankees ended up advancing to the World Series. They lost to the Dodgers in 1981. Then, for the 1982 season, Steinbrenner fired Lemon after just 14 games and replaced him with Stick Michael again. Michael was fired that August after the team was 44 and 42 under him. I mean, it's comical. It's impossible not to laugh at this stuff. I'm, I'm trying to imagine if I was the fan I am today, just put me back in the late 70s and early 80s, and every two weeks, you got, you got another manager coming in. Someone's getting fired. Someone's getting hired. I would have been going crazy. I don't know how Stick Michael wasn't going crazy. Imagine dealing with George at that time. Fired, hired, team goes to the playoffs, then they get bounced, and he's just making these rash decisions. You're trying to manage with this crazy person at the top who's making these rash decisions, but he was able to do it largely. He got good results out of the team, but it didn't last very long with the Yankees in the early 80s. And then he went on to manage the Cubs in the 86 and 87 season, but overall he had a losing record there. And then a few years later, in 1990, he returned to the Yankees as general manager. So I had a theory going into researching for this episode that the only reason that Stick took the job in 1990 was because Steinbrenner would not be there. He would not have to deal with him because of the suspension. However, then I found out that that suspension was actually handed down in July of 1990 and Michael had already taken the job. So that theory was out the window. But it doesn't change the fact that a real turning point for the Yankees was when Steinbrenner was banned from baseball operations. It was supposed to be a lifetime ban. Didn't last. It lasted until 1993. But in those three years, Michael was able to really craft and mold the organization the way he wanted to. 
And then when Steinbrenner returned, he was even described among other people in the organization as more mellow, more understanding, more willing to listen to his employees. One article in the Daily News described it as Steinbrenner finally, quote, got religion, which was great news for the Yankees with Stick at the helm. People within the game say that he had a unique ability to understand the clubhouse culture in conjunction with an eye for scouting talent because he had the unique perspective of having been a player, a coach, and a general manager. That's that's kind of rare amongst the job. Buck Showalter called him the best baseball evaluator he ever saw. And this clip of Cashman and Showalter talking about Stick pretty much sums up what he was able to do in the early G. 90s. Michael instilled patience. I mean, the franchise obviously isn't known for patience. He took on a rebuilding mode and went through our system to grow it and protect certain players. The patience factor with the young players was something that uh, Gene and I shared, and we bought into six or seven of these guys that we really felt had a chance to be players. He could see the tools and the packages that these guys had, and he would project out in his mind that these are things that could be important pieces for us going forward. He was very diligent. This wasn't one of the GMs that set up an office. This was a guy that got down and scouted players and watched players. He was the decision maker in holding on to an Andy Pitt and a Derek Jeter and a Mariano Rivera, George Posada and a Bernie Williams, for instance. All those guys, you know, he was hit many a time by opposing general managers. I would be in the office and I would hear him say, no, we're going to hold on to this guy. So Stick was back with a few rounds with George Steinbrenner under his belt, and I think that definitely helped him in his dealings with Big Stein. And Cashman alluded to a few of the moves I want to talk about in that clip. The first one being the non-trade of Bernie Williams. And I thought of the saying, sometimes the best trades are the ones you don't make. That definitely applies to Bernie. Bernie, born in Puerto Rico, was signed by the Yankees as an amateur free agent in 1985. So he wasn't originally a stick guy, but he became a stick guy. Stick was a huge fan of Bernie. He had immense talent, obviously, but he did go through some periods of struggle in the minor leagues, and his path to the majors, to the Yankees outfield, was not that clear in the early 90s because they actually had a pretty decent outfield. They had guys like Roberto Kelly, Jesse Barfield, and Danny Tartable in the outfield already, so Bernie didn't become a full-time center fielder until 1992, and he had won the job over Roberto Kelly at that time. And then they traded for Paul O'Neill after the 92 season. I'm going to get to that in a second. But for a little while there, Bernie didn't have a clear spot. And he wasn't helping himself in the 92 and 93 seasons. He had okay years if you look at his stats. In 1994, though, then he really started to establish himself. That was the strike-shortened season. But Michael really had to fight for him in those couple of years before he became a really productive player. There's an anecdote that every article, if you read about Stick Michael fighting for Bernie Williams, every article contains this exact same story where every time Steinbrenner would ask Stick about trading Bernie Williams, he would say, I've called every team and nobody wants him. It was a lie. He never called any teams. He just wanted to keep Bernie Williams. And that was the lie he would tell Steinbrenner to keep him, to shut him up. Who knows? Maybe that's an urban legend, but either way, I love it. Some of the rumored deals from that time involving Bernie were the first one was Jim Abbott in the 1992 season. The second one was Bernie to the Expos for Larry Walker in 1993. And then in 1995, so as late as 1995, there were strong rumors of trading Bernie Williams to the Giants for Darren Lewis. Thank God none of those happened. I guess you could make the argument that Larry Walker would have been a plus. 
However, Larry Walker doesn't play center field. Bernie Williams did, so I'm fine with what the Yankees got out of Bernie. I'll end the Bernie segment with a quote from Bernie himself after the passing of Gene Michael. He said, Gene Michael always supported me when I was a young and up-and-coming player, and despite some struggles along the way, always believed that I would become a significant part of the Yankees organization. I never forgot that. You could tell that Bernie has an appreciation for Stick that goes beyond just believing in him as a player. Michael stuck up for Bernie in the early 90s when he was being bullied in the clubhouse. What Bernie went through was further than just casual rookie hazing, which has even gone by the wayside now. We don't really see it anymore. But you know what I'm talking about. The fun sort of dress up as a cartoon character or something like that as a team. What Bernie went through went beyond that. And really at the center of it was Mel Hall. He referred to Bernie as zero, straight to his face, basically telling him, you are zero, you are nothing. And other teammates called him Bambi because they thought he was weak. Michael basically told these players to cut it out, that the organization believes in Bernie and you need to stop it. And they did. They listened to Michael. Obviously, he's the GM. He's the guy in charge. But what Bernie went through in those years was a lot. So obviously, Bernie has an appreciation for Michael that that is just beyond giving him a chance to play baseball. He really stuck up for him as a person. And a side note to, to Bernie, and this isn't really a stick Michael thing, but Bob Watson nearly traded Bernie to the Tigers in November of 1997 for two pitching prospects named Mike Drumright and Roberto Duran. Never heard of him? <laughs> yeah, that's the point. There was a press release drawn up and everything, and then at the last minute, Watson backed out. So by my count, that means Bernie was almost traded four times from 92 to 97. I'm sure there's more times that we just don't know about, but four times where there was something either strongly rumored or a deal actually in place. And good thing for Watson that he ended up backing out of that deal because that would have been our lasting memory of Bob Watson as a general manager because just a few months later, in February of 1998, Brian Cashman was named Yankees general manager and has been ever since. Moving on to what, in my opinion, is the best deal that Stick Michael ever made was acquiring Paul O'Neill on November 3rd, 1992 from the Cincinnati Reds for Roberto Kelly. The Yankees also got minor leaguer by the name of Joe DeBerry. He never turned into anything, so it was essentially O'Neill for Roberto Kelly swap. By Michael's own admission, this move was a gamble. Roberto Kelly had been in the Yankees organization forever. And he was looked at as the future superstar of the team. He was supposed to take the reins from Don Mattingly and be really the centerpiece of the Yankees. Kelly was signed in 1982 as an amateur free agent at the age of 18, and he made his debut in 87, and over seven seasons with the Yankees had a 107 OPS+, plus, so a little bit above league average. But he never popped. With the Reds, he played 125 games in 1993 and 1994. He hit 313, but he could never really stay healthy. They ended up trading him to the Braves for Deion Sanders during the 1994 season. The Yankees unequivocally won this deal in a landslide, as you know if you followed the Yankees in the 90s. O'Neill was a central figure in those championship teams. O'Neill at the time was 29 years old, and he is an Ohio native, so in a sense he was playing for his hometown team. And similar to Kelly, he never really hit his full potential with the Reds either. He had a great season in 1991, but 92 was a down year for him. Michael, though, saw something in him. He wanted to acquire him. He said, We were looking for a left-handed hitter because I didn't think we had enough. I always said we were too right-handed. I feel this is a quality hitter and Yankee Stadium should be conducive to his hitting. And yeah, <laughs> I'd say that was pretty accurate, dead-on assessment 
from Michael. But I but I found it a little interesting because I can't imagine Cashman saying something like that today since he is so analytically driven. He's not going to acquire a player specifically for a right-handed or left-handed bat. He's just going to plug in whoever's best into the lineup. That wasn't the the thinking back then as much. However, it worked out wonderfully for for Stick and the Yankees. I expected to find some negative articles written about this trade because Kelly had been in the organization for such a long time and he was thought to really be the next guy in New York. But the articles were fair and they basically sided with Stick who said he loved O'Neill's ability to fight in at-bats, something that Roberto Kelly did not possess, and also that he would thrive in Yankee Stadium. And again, that was so accurate. O'Neill went from a 111 OPS plus hitter with the Reds to a 125 OPS plus hitter with the Yankees. His average season in New York was 303 batting average, 869 OPS, 21 homers, 34 doubles, and he won the batting title in 1994, and he had four top 15 MVP finishes. But we know with O'Neill, it wasn't just the numbers he put up. There was so much more to him as a player and a leader in that clubhouse. Give credit to where credit is due. Stick Michael saw that from afar. Just a quick side note, I think an assist on this deal should definitely go to Lou Pinella, who spoke to Michael about O'Neill's presence in the clubhouse and his abilities on the field and really convinced him to pull the trigger on this trade. Found this also funny, the Reds GM at the time, Jim Bowden, called it the worst trade he's ever made. But damn am I happy he made it, because I cannot imagine the 1990 Yankees winning four out of five championships without O'Neill there. And every fan loves O'Neill. I've never met a Yankees fan who was old enough to appreciate baseball in the 1990s that does not love Paul O'Neill. And that all really culminated in Game 5 of the 2001 World Series when we all knew it was his last game, he was retiring. And with the team down, they still took the time to chant his name an entire inning. O'Neill will give that a look, as will Tito Martinez. Foul territory and out of one. Down still two and two. You could tell Paul O'Neill was touched. Oh boy. By that, and I know you as a longtime major league player, you get touched hearing something like that. You certainly do. Another brilliant move was the non-trade of Mariano Rivera. Now, where the non-trade of Bernie Williams and the trade acquisition of Paul O'Neill were definitely stick evaluating these players and saying, I want to keep this guy or I want to get this guy. With Rivera, there's definitely some luck involved, and really it's just good timing is what it comes down to. Rivera was signed as an amateur free agent in 1990, and he was a starting pitcher. He worked his way through the organization to make his Major League debut in 1995, but it comes down to June of 95, where he was almost traded to Detroit. In late May and early June of 95, he made four starts with the Yankees, and he got demolished. His ERA after those starts was 10.20, and he was experiencing shoulder discomfort that caused his velocity to dip into the high 80s. Michael was preparing to trade Rivera to Detroit for David Wells that summer. They needed some starting pitching, and he wanted David Wells. A few NL teams were also interested, but he really had the framework for the deal done with the Detroit GM, Joe Klein. Klein loved Rivera. He had seen him pitch in the minors a bunch of times. He identified this guy as someone with a high ceiling, and he was dying to get him. He just didn't want to do it while Rivera was going through some shoulder discomfort because the Yankees had put Rivera on the DL. So he wanted to wait 
until he came off the DL until they pulled the trigger on the trade, really for optics. But then what happened was like a stroke of good fortune, or as Rivera calls it, an act of God. Rivera comes off the disabled list two weeks later, and he's throwing 95 miles an hour. He never threw 95 miles an hour before his injury. He would be, you know, 91 to 92, maybe 93. But all of a sudden in the minors, he's touching 95. And Stick is like, well, can't trade this guy now. He's thrown in the mid-90s. They called him back up to the majors, and he definitely pitched better. He made six starts and had a 4.15 ERA the rest of the way with the Yankees in 1995. It's a mystery how he went from throwing low 90s to mid-90s. Like I said, he called it an act of God. Rivera is a very religious man. Everyone in the organization, Stick, Michael, Showalter, they just say they're dumbfounded. They don't know how it happened, but they didn't really care. It just happened and changed the course of not only Rivera's career, but the course of the Yankees. Some other great moves, signings, and trades of players that you're going to recognize having contributed to championships are signing Jimmy Key before the 93 season, signing Wade Boggs before the 93 season. He acquired John Wetland from the Expos. Yeah, I know that's that's a little iffy now because obviously Wetland's a dirtbag, but he did help them win a championship. He acquired David Cohn from the Blue Jays for Marty Jansen, Jason Jarvis, and Mike Gordon in 1995. Now think about it. If that trade for Wells, Rivera for Wells goes through in early July of 1995, they probably don't acquire David Cohn at the trading deadline in 1995. So that's a little sliding doors moment right there. They drafted Andy Pettit in 1990 and then signed him in 1991. Jorge Posada was drafted in 1990. Ramiro Mendoza was signed as an amateur free agent. And obviously the one you've probably all been waiting for me to say is drafting Derek Jeter sixth overall in 1992. I also saw a clip where Showalter remembers talking to Michael one day about Derek Jeter because he had just been booting the ball around the minors. He was leading the the league he was in at the time in the minors in errors. And Showalter was like, we got to move this guy's position. He's not going to be a major league shortstop. And Stick was adamant that Jeter was going to be not only a major league shortstop, but an all-star shortstop. And obviously he was right. He was right about many things. Of the 39 players that Michael inherited in 1990, only three remained on the 40-man roster throughout his entire tenure. Don Mattingly, Jim Laritz, and Randy Velarde. So that just shows you how much turnover he orchestrated within the organization. Another thing that he definitely deserves credit for is promoting Buck Showalter to be manager in 92, his first job in the majors as manager. That, that also worked out. And maybe the thing that he was best at or the thing that he learned to do over time that ultimately was a reason why he was able to build the dynasty is because he was able to work with Steinbrenner. He was able to stand up to him. He was able to say no to him on some players and some players that were that he wanted to keep that Steinbrenner wanted to trade. And that's a bigger reason as any why the Yankees won all those championships. But you know what? Ironically enough, his ability to stand up to Steinbrenner and disagree with Steinbrenner may have been his downfall and the reason why after the 95 season he was replaced with Bob Watson, which we also discussed this in the Showalter Tory episode, but there was a contract dispute between Stick and Steinbrenner during the 94-95 player strike. They also disagreed on how the entire thing was handled, and I guess Steinbrenner just wanted to move on. I wish that Stick had been there for those couple years to hand it off officially to 
to Brian Cashman in 1998 that he was able to win the championship in 96 because it was really his team. Yeah, Watson did make some nice moves to add some veteran players to the team that definitely got them over the hump. But there's there's no denying that Stick could have made those moves, similar moves that also could have gotten them a championship. So the core of it was Stick. But after he was no longer GM, he stayed with the organization and he remained there until his passing in 2017. He worked as an advisor to Brian Cashman. And his influence on Brian Cashman and who Brian Cashman is today as a general manager definitely cannot be understated. Cashman grew up as a baseball executive under Gene Michael. Cashman was only 23 years old in 1990. He actually started with the Yankees organization as an intern in the mid-80s. So he's a Yankee lifer if there ever is one. But Cashman learned so much from Stick. And now, reflecting on Michael, he said he was able to appreciate how he's an old-school scout, but open-minded about analytics. And that ability to adapt with the times is really something we've seen Cashman do and something that Stick Michael did. But when Cashman was asked what the biggest thing he took away from Stick Michael, he said this. It was the power of no comment. He's talking about to the media. It wasn't that he thought I would be a GM someday, but he would just share what he believed. And he said when a reporter got some secret behind the scenes info about the Yankees business and called him, he warned, never lie. He said you will sacrifice your integrity and make things worse in the long run because the truth always comes out. He said the power of no comment was the get out of jail card. You don't have to confirm or deny, but chasing a writer who did his job and got the information right of the story creates problems moving forward. Let them try to confirm it elsewhere, but don't lie. I found that fascinating because I have long said Brian Cashman is the master of saying a lot of words without really saying anything. And that's sort of the no comment thing. You're going to talk, but you don't have to give away too much information. And that's something we see Brian Cashman doing every day when he talks to the media. Cashman and others identified patience as Stick's best attribute. After Steinbrenner passed away, Stick was reflecting on their relationship, and he said that Steinbrenner taught him about the business of baseball, but he taught Steinbrenner about patience with players, something that Steinbrenner had none of. Steinbrenner was not a baseball evaluator. He acted on emotion. Stick was able to be a baseball evaluator and convince Steinbrenner to stick with players, to trust the process, trust the baseball knowledge that Stick had. And that was really important when you had Steinbrenner owning the team, just wheeling and dealing on emotion. And I'll leave you with this. He was asked uh, fairly close to his death uh, in 2016 timeframe, why he continued to consult for the Yankees. And he said, I'm getting paid to watch baseball. Why would I ever walk away from it? Grounds to third. Brocious fittingly with a throw. The Yankees have done it again. Number 24. They are the world champions of baseball in 1998. Harris flashing and Rivera cool as a cucumber. The 1-0. Swung on. Hit in the air to left center. Bernie trots over. Curtis is there. Curtis makes the catch. Ball game over. World Series over. Yankees win. The Yankees win! Piazza gets into one to center. Back is Brian Williams. A three-piece. The New York Yankees. For the third time in a row. Fourth time in five years. 
the 26th time in franchise history they are the world champions.